Aloha, and welcome to another Lesson Learned conversation. I'm joined today by Caroline, my daughter, who's the rock star behind the education piece of this um, business. And, and we want to try and explain or, or review the process that we've gone through to take us to the place that we're at now with internet-based learning. And to start that, I, I want to just recount a little bit of history on teaching, what I lovingly would call the sage on the stage. Caroline currently is doing that in the public school system in California. I did it at a university in Canada, and I did it with two different dealerships across Canada. And I did it within the consulting business that we started in 1980. And then from about the early 1990s, 92 or three or four in that range, we started doing classroom training for the industry for several associations and manufacturers. And as that morphed into people being concerned about the cost of training, we moved into webinars and the webinar was a, you're, you're, seeing a slideshow, you're hearing my voice, I don't see any of the students, which is what drove me crazy. And I would use things like different Hawaiian shirts to get people interested who because we did these sequentially. And I would break the webinar up because I used a high definition camera and I could walk in front of the camera and look at the crowd instead of them seeing a slide. And that's kind of how we put it all together up until when we made the determination that we were going to go to the internet and do everything on the internet and create a learning process, a learning path um, of a class. And at that point, Caroline, maybe you want to walk through the process we went through on learning management software reviews and what you had to do and, and, and how you've built the classes since. Well, I like to say tongue-in-cheek, that we moved to online learning before it was cool, although I know absolutely no one on earth would think of a pandemic as being cool. But in about 2015, we started pushing to transition from webinar into internet-based self-study. And in early 2016, we uh, came across a learning management software product that was highly recommended, which we initially began with. Over time, you know, the sometimes when you start something, you don't know what you don't know. Over time, we realized, okay, that isn't quite the answer. And we did end up moving to the learning management software we use now. But one of the things we were trying to do was offer students the opportunity to pace in their own time, whether it happened to be at work in downtime or on a lunch break, or if they chose at home in their own personal time, pace their own studies to develop or enhance their skills, their professional development, in order to continue to have growth in their job position. And research always tells us that that's one of the ways you alleviate stagnation, you alleviate boredom. And how many people, especially with millennials in the workforce now, it's a common complaint, they seem to get bored. We like to have the path. 
But the initial phase of moving to internet-based learning wasn't um, wasn't what I would con- consider like a real school. And as an accredited provider of continuing education now, we are, in fact, a real school. With that, our classes look very different than the first rough transitions to internet-based. Now, we have courses that are segmented into smaller chunks, learning chunks, maybe 15 to 20 minutes in a segment, because research has demonstrated that students need a pause. They need a break to refresh themselves after about 15 minutes of learning, depending on how weighty the subject is, it actually can be less. So we segmented classes into those learning chunks. But because the classes are online, and as dad was saying, you don't like the webinar format because you can't see your students. I felt the same way about Zoom, just a bunch of black windows on my screen, not showing me anything. We needed to find a way to mimic the interaction, the pause for feedback that you would have in a classroom experience. And what we came up with was just a quick check for understanding. Formally, most people would call it a quiz. Let me me interrupt there and break in for a second. Going back, what that study, what the studies showed us on learning and retention was what I experienced at school, and maybe you did the same thing, You'd have a professor, a teacher in the front of the room talking, what I lovingly call the sage on the stage. And the students aren't concentrating. They're not paying attention full time. They wander off. They come back. Their mind goes somewhere else. They might miss a whole bunch. What happened was, and we experienced it when we started putting quizzes in, the first quiz that people were confronted with They didn't do very well. The second quiz that happened 10 or 15 minutes later, they did better. But the third quiz, they figured it out by then that, wait a second, there's going to be quizzes. I better pay attention to what's going on here. That seems to have been one of the real amazing truths about segmentation. Have have you experienced that? When you're in the classroom, you, you have a checkpoint, don't you, where you're coming around and making sure everybody's still with you. I have what's called a reverse designed classroom. Which is? I am the most silent person in the room. I'll present something for a moment. I will clarify directions or where we're going. And with my classroom, it's, it's an English language arts classroom. I am not actually, in my opinion, teaching something really scary like calculus. So I give them their objective. That's a learning goal, just like what our classes have. Um, At at the lower levels, K through 12, another way we phrase it is the students will be able to. That's your objective. They'll be able to do this thing. Well, then the students start picking it apart. What does that mean? What's it going to look like? My question is, what do you think it looks like? What should it be? I'm a facilitator, not a lecturer. Now, the first couple of weeks of the school year before they know who I am, I'm sort of a lecturer because half of them come in 
I still have kids who come in crying on the first day. They're afraid. And as someone who had butterflies like turkey vultures in my stomach on the first day of school every year, despite loving school, I get it. You don't know if somebody's going to be cruel, unkind, if a teacher's going to be really intimidating. But the students lead the classroom. And I find that with some of the gaps from COVID, it works more effectively in not only catching students up on what they've missed and plugging those gaps, but getting them back towards mastery. Um, and and, so and what, they, you're what you're describing is this Socratic teaching. If you're the one that's talking the least and, and they're starting to engage in going through the process and, and you come back, well, why did you, why did you select that? Or why did you think that? That's, that's pure Socrates, isn't it? You're not providing answers. You're provoking thinking. Well, and a lot of it is, especially at the grade levels I'm working in, they need to be able to analyze what they read in order to formulate an argument. And nowhere in there does it say that the argument has to be X, Y, or Z. So half the time we'll be picking something apart. Why did they say it this way? Why did she use these words? And well, what do you think, miss? No, oh, well, maybe it's this. Why would I, what does it sound like if we read it out loud there? What does it sound like this way? So I can get them going. And I obviously have to redirect, but I've found that I'll call it 99 times out of 100. I make a lot more progress with redirecting by saying, ooh, I love the way you're doing that, as opposed to saying, you need to stop making weird noises with your mouth now, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I chose that specifically because, man, I heard a few today that I thought, is it a wild animal call? What is the impression? <laughs> but I do, and, and as the year goes by, data proves that that method, the Socratic method works. So it shows how, on the dreaded testing too. <laughs> yes. How how does that translate into how you designed the classes for learning? I know where we need to go in general. I have data from early assessments right at the start of the year to tell me what might be challenging, but I always throw my own checks in there to balance it out because a test won't tell me everything. A student might just literally hate testing or get completely panicky when there's a test in front of them. So all of a sudden, we're going to do a, a fun game, a popcorn read. But most of them come to me in middle school thinking school is what you have to do. It's not what you want to do. So in a way, it's a little bit like a magic show. How do I turn around their preconceived ideas so that they go, oh, wait a minute. And when they learn that, hey, we're reading, for, for instance, right now we're reading a memoir. When they learn that they can say, this person is crazy and no one tells them they're wrong for saying that, but instead they're met with, okay, why? What do you think? What do you see there that makes you think that's completely nuts to do. 
she walked to the North Pole. No snowmobile, no sled dogs, one woman, all her gear, one dog, walked. Oh, and skied sometimes when they were up to it. So to me, a student going through this, reading it and saying, this lady is off the wall, crazy. And then how excited he was when nobody just looked at him and said, that's dumb. You need to sound more like a student. No, you're analyzing, you're reading it, you're responding to it. That's communication. And they direct the breaks. Yeah. They know when they need a joke, a drink of water, a shake it off. So how did you do that in the Learning Without Scars classes? Knowing that they needed smaller chunks, I tried to design so that the objectives would be met in each chunk. So for each 15 minutes, there is some detail, something that a student should be able to, right? Students will be able to do by the end. And then the check for understanding afterwards to make sure that they can, in fact, do what they should be able to do at the end. Also, with the segmentation, going to that shorter breaks, shorter sections for focus, for memory, for retention. The classes all along were set so a student could pause and exit at any time. And it would take them back to exactly where they left off. But we learned very quickly that when you hand them a class and it has one unbroken video chunk, I don't know if it's a sense of competition or a sense of obligation, but they seem to think they need to go through it in one sitting. Now it's automatically designed so that they can say, now's a good point to walk away to do something else. That's a really good point. The, the original ones that we had, they, they run 120 to 160 slides. And originally, we just had one big, long video, didn't we? Mm-hmm. They could stop and start. And yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that they were doing it as a competition. I got to get this finished. Um, breaking it down really changes that whole dynamic. It, it makes them relax a lot more about what they're doing in front of them. They know it's only going to, you know, if we've got 150 slides, just use round numbers. And we we typically have between five and 10 segments per class. That means we're looking at between 15 and 30 slides before there's a quiz, mm-hmm. before there's a break. And in that 15 to 30 slides, you've got slides, you've got audio tracks, you've got film clips that are closed captioned. You've got all this stuff going on. So you can't really get bored in that period of time, can you? No, you can't. And if you read survey data at the end of each class, I like to put it in the before category and the now category. Before, when we had the one big video chunk, when so many students would try to go through it all in one sitting. Many, many, many surveys commented on the fact that your voice is very relaxing. (laughs) And when they listen to it for many minutes on end, they start to feel a little sleepy. And no one says that anymore. Yeah, Matthew McGonaghy got that business looked after. He does nighttime 
talks to put people to sleep. I, I actually considered that when, the, when those survey things came back, like you say, you know, I put people to sleep with my voice. No, actually, Matthew McConaughey is not the one. There was someone years before, I don't even know the podcaster's name, but um, nothing much happens. And you put this podcast on and he says, oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, friends beyond the binary. Welcome to another evening of a story where nothing much happens. And man, it's like a sedative. So the, isn't it interesting because the world that we're living in has created perceptions for you and I based on our experiences, and that's colored how we present things in the learning environment. When I was growing up in Montreal, we had a man in the evening by the name of Paul Reed, who was on the radio from 7 at night till 11 at night, and he reputedly drank a bottle of scotch each night. But he had, and he read poetry, and he had soft, schmaltzy music. And he did Christmas things, The Littlest Angel, he's very famous for. And so you you use your voice as an instrument, as a teacher, putting presentations on at conventions. Your voice is is really your your instrument to reach the audience. In a two-dimensional world on the internet, our voice is part of it. But I was talking to a a gentleman earlier today before we started who said, I can't imagine that you can have the same interaction in a class on the Internet that you had in a class when I've seen you very nicely, but in five to ten seconds smack somebody in a nice way that they were going down the wrong path. How do you do that online? And I say, well, we have a Zoom meeting at the end. It's optional. If anybody wants to get here and have a conversation with us, we can do that. But this whole package, it's its the, the thing I was trying to get to at the beginning is almost everybody transitioned from webinars to the internet. And all they did was put a two-dimensional piece up there that had a slide. The graphics might have been great and a voice, but it wasn't a learning event. You've created, no. you've created learning events. And actually, you've created sub-events within the class, haven't you? Yes. And we also have the event that kicks off the class. Just as in every other school, there's a reading list. There are prerequisites for college courses you take, whether it's a you need to have read this book or studied this or taken this class. There is something you should do before you start. And also the early pretest, the assessment that comes at the beginning, because one of the important things in education is you have to tap into prior knowledge. Well, with internet-based classes, I'm not there saying, hello, where are you? What do you already have? Do you remember this? Instead, a student is looking at that pretest and going, oh, oh, I haven't thought about that in a while. But they are able to look at what they already know, what they can already do, and it gets the mind going, that and the reading list together. And then, of course, we have the other update. It's the benefit of early adoption of any technology. The other update we have is that now, in addition to being fully accredited, we are also fully ADA compliant because every film clip, 
that is dropped into a class where it's actually you talking just as you would in a live classroom now has closed captioning available for all students. And even in the event a student doesn't need that, right? They're perfectly capable of hearing every word you say without needing to read it. There are so many neural pathways in the brain that are stimulated by seeing what you're saying, hearing what you're saying. You're hitting two separate types of learning styles at the same time, and it builds that neural pathway for greater recall later. Yeah, you mentioned the reading list, and I'm I'm really pleased that you did that because I I kind of overlooked that initially. The reading list that we provided was optional, and we're we're talking with a lot of schools over the last couple of months and. One of the deans of a technical school in the West was, was uh, I'm, I'm talking, should the reading list be optional or, or should it be mandatory? He said, no, no, make, make it mandatory. In fact, at the end of every one of the reading events that you have, you should have a quiz so that you get a, a, a grasp or a grip on how much they actually absorbed of that reading material. And, and that's what we're doing. And then to your ADA compliance, we've, we've created audio tracks that go with every one of those reading lists. And that is- also puts us beyond the pale to interject in a good way, because um, online professional development mandated by the state for state employees here in California, and I'm sure we're no different in that aspect than any other state. There are no audio tracks on the reading. Really? have to copy the text, paste it into a new window, preferably on a Mac, and then just push the little audio button and it will read it to you in the computerized voice that sometimes, depending on what your class is, it may not pronounce things correctly. It's, um, it's not that it's an insurmountable task to do it that way, but most people When you look at professional development, most people aren't signing themselves up right off the get-go, out of the gate. They're strongly encouraged to sign up because they want a new job, a new position in their current job, a promotion, a pay raise. They're going in for an evaluation. Or in the case of state employees, you know, we have to do so many hours a year. So... Why would you give them an extra task? So now, not only am I doing this class, and maybe it wasn't my first choice, but now you want me to copy this, paste it over here, figure out how to make my computer play it so I can hear what I'm reading. I mean, you'd be surprised. People don't have to be English language learners to benefit from having an audio track with their reading. Well, the other thing about the audio tracks that I like, and I hadn't really considered, a lot of folks listen to podcasts when they're driving, mm-hmm. when they're exercising. The same thing's true with our reading list. You can do that on just about any platform you want to get to. And it's striking to me the last week or so, there's been a lot made of the return of the annual performance review. And the reason that it was coming back was, and here's a direct quote from a Wall Street Journal article that was published last week, the 18th. Executives at some major companies have delivered a clear message to managers this summer. Identify the underperformers and show them the exit. 
A performance review isn't about finding out who I want to get rid of. A performance review is supposed to be a positive event where I'm helping you develop and grow as a person. And the learning experiences we have in our classes are prime examples of that. We want, you say, you start with an assessment. We start with an assessment, 96 questions, very comprehensive, objective. And we know what they know. More importantly, we know what they don't know. And also they know as well, because there's nothing that's going to motivate a person faster than their own awareness of where the gaps are for them. Most now, of us know it's... that anyways, don't we? True. We know where, we, where our weaknesses are. Sometimes I think we get in a rut, though. I agree. You I know, agree. do the same thing over and over again, and it becomes routine. It becomes habitual. And maybe you get, well, automatic. You become an automaton about some things. So if you're not as focused, there has to be something to freshen it up for you. And the annual performance review being a way to show people the door, what does that imply for the people who didn't get shown the door? What are we doing for them then? Anything? Or are we just going, well, I'm taking you for granted? No, we should be cultivating them, developing them. No one is going to be, I mean, if I've already learned everything I can possibly learn, that means I'm dead. <laughs> because as long as I'm living, I have, have no more yes. to learn. And and an annual performance review, look, teachers get evaluated all the time. And sometimes they get cranky about it if I... I don't have it on me, but I have a 10-page document I have to fill out with specific objectives and criteria, which ones are you follow, following through in each category, and how are you doing it, and what will your evidence look like? And then an administrator comes in and, and observes and does feedback. Never, ever, ever do you have a flawless performance review. That's not the point of it. The point of it is just like any learning opportunity. I love what you did here. Have you thought about doing this? There's always something that you can adjust, a direction you can try that you haven't tried before. It's, it's part of the reason that when they ask who could teach this, even if it's something brand new to me, I say, I'm willing to learn how. Show me how. Now I have 30 students in front of me every morning in second period saying, yay, you're our new yearbook teacher. And I have never done that in my life, but we're all learning it together. And that's the point. There's no perfection. And if an employee doesn't know what they're doing, if their performance review indicates a lot of gaps, I think that says a lot less about the employee than it does the company. Because where's the onboard? Where's the training? And even in education, nobody, you have to take classes, sure. But when you started a school, it's a totally different thing. No one tells you anything. You don't know. Yeah. I was talking with the president, he's retired, but a president of a major brand dealership, a large one, this afternoon. And we were talking about learning and, and schooling. And I said, you know, and when we came out of university, we were about the same age. He's, he's younger than I am, as most people are today. Um, we we could be pretty comfortable that we'd be able to get through our whole career with having to go without having to go back to school to get retooled. So today, it's impossible. You you can't do that anymore. You might 
if you're lucky, you might have a 20-year life of the learning that you have up to the end of graduation of university. And he came back and said, my company sent me off for a week at a time every six months to a university environment to learn. And then I said, did you do that for every employee? He said, oh, no, we couldn't do that. It's too expensive. And that comes back to the other part. Are the employees assets or are they expenses? Is it intellectual capital we're actually talking about here? Just imagine if you were able to extract the skills and knowledge, selling, warehousing, purchasing, paying bills, payroll. If we could extract all that knowledge and put it into a, a, a bottle, and take it away from all the employees and capitalize that, put it on the balance sheet. Then we'd be looking at employees the right way. If you don't have employees that know what they're doing, you will not have a business, period. And at the rate technology shifts and adjusts and updates, I'm I'm walking in tomorrow and I'm going to have software I've never encountered in my life. In fact, they can't even remember what software it is they're giving me. But I have one hidden advantage only. No one can teach me how to use it. But I happen to be married to a graphic designer. So I know if all else fails, when you're in your 40s, you go, okay, well, publisher looked like this. So the next iteration is going to have some elements there, something from Photoshop, something from, and you have to keep learning. And if we know that about ourselves as employers, as employees, as teachers, as students, Shouldn't everybody be on that page? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, it's, it really becomes interesting on um, this process. The, the learning aspect of our lives takes us to a different place, doesn't it? It does. And it's one of the things that I know with the lack of budget, in most high schools for technical programs. I know with the differences state to state in how high school is managed, uh, how everything's managed, that we lack a lot of, we don't have a federal education system. I mean, we do have a federal department of education, but when I say a federal education system, there's no set fixed standard in every state. So there's still a high school, Hop, skip, and a jump away up in uh, Lake Arrowhead. We have a high school called uh, Rim of the World High School. It still has auto shop and it still has wood shop, and they still teach them. They're the only high school within two hours that has that. There's a continuation school somewhere out on the fringes of LA, I believe, that has this a similar program. But then you have other states like Washington, where a high school student can also enroll at a junior college certificate program and do a combined program. I know my students aren't coming out that way. I know my students in my classroom, because of where we are, they won't have that access. However, if I get them through graduation, whatever their next step is, if it's college, if it's technical college, if it's going straight to work, because many of them are planning to do so, if they have the critical thinking skills and the ability to know where to start looking for the answers, 
that's the skill they need graduating high school. Yes, they have to be able to read. Yes, they have to be able to do mathematics. I'm not saying those things don't matter, but they have to have the skill development to analyze, assess, make decisions, read a room, interact with customers. All of these are elements of critical thinking skills. And even the most introverted person knows that at some point you have to deal with people when you walk out your door. So a lot of times I hear all of the things that are lacking when a young person gets onto the job market. It's true. You also have to look at where they're coming from, which state, which part of which state. A kid coming up in Lake Arrowhead up the mountain is going to have an advantage that a child in Coachella doesn't. But a child in Coachella might have a different advantage. For instance, an ag program in a high school that they don't have at the others. So if we come into it knowing our employees, trusting that our employees have those critical thinking skills when they walk in the door, the rest is a vessel you can fill. And as an employer, you really should be. Yeah, you're, you're, you're bringing up, you know, I had a chat, as you know, with uh, Dr. Jack Hawkins at Troy University about two weeks ago. And I asked him what the, the gaps were for children coming out of high school, getting into university. What, what were the things that they were missing? And he, analytical skills, critical thinking skills, communication skills. And the thing that he said that troubled him the most was he's not sure where leadership is coming from in the future generations because there seems to be a huge gap there. And that might be a function of the social media uh, world that we live in today. But there's, there's, there's an interesting byproduct of education that, you know, if, if we're serious about learning, I'm sharing my screen now. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. If you are passionate about learning, you're never going to have to worry about earning. And if you have the ability to come out of your school years with the capacity to teach yourself, if you've learned how to teach yourself, if you've got the discipline, you're, you're never going to be in trouble. In our classes, we're trying to get people to follow a path to fill in the gaps that they have in their skills that we identify through assessments. And Caroline, as you know, we have an implementation program, depending on the score you get on the assessment, mm -hmm. for either a six-month path or a 12-month path, where you'll take three classes, another assessment, and have a productive performance review, not a show them to the door performance review. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it, that's the kind of thing that drives me crazy. So this this whole evolution of our learning product, the last class that you, I prototype all of the classes that Caroline puts up there, and the last class you put out in front of me, it really felt like I was in a classroom. It was rather remarkable, even if it's our product that I'm talking about. So congratulations, that's, that's, uh, that's a nice job. Thank you. Well, ISET definitely helps, but also taking courses in an online format helped as well in hybrid models with National University, where I would check in and have a, 
a professor who would be there in a meeting and we'd be doing the, the Zoom meeting together, having the passive Blackboard structure class modules to do, tasks to accomplish. We're a school. That's and a good, that's a good place to end it, I think. We are a school. Yeah. And it's it, we're going to be evolving like all schools do, like all education platforms do. Uh, the other interesting challenge that we face that not very many in North America do, we are in French and Spanish, not just English. And that's kind of interesting in its own way. Well, how would you like to close this thing up? Well, if I could impart words of wisdom, I would say, please don't make your annual performance review a very scary, monstrous horror movie scene where somebody knows going in with sweat trickling down their backs that they're possibly about to lose their job. But I would also say, teach your employees, show your employees that you see that their success is your success. That builds loyalty. They don't take that and go somewhere else. They take that and it gives them that feeling that they're seen, they matter, and that you're there to make sure they're succeeding with you. You care. Yeah. You care. That's that's a nice way to wrap this. This lesson learned um, discussion is, is really centered on how we have learned to create the classes that we are using, how we have learned based on the survey results we get back from the students who take every class, because we get a survey from everybody, what they liked, what they didn't like, what we thought they thought we missed or what they didn't need. We're, we're very responsive and it, and it seems to be showing in how the students are viewing our classes. So Caroline, thank you for everything you're doing and everybody in the audience, thank you for participating. And Caroline, you want to have one last shot. And next up, I will start trying to persuade you, Dad, to do ASMR videos. Okay, we'll have to talk about that because I don't even know what that acronym means. It, it's the helping people fall asleep and relax stuff. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Mahalo. I look forward to having you with us at the next podcast that we produce. Bye now. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate your support. Should you have any thoughts or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at www.learningwithoutscars.com. The time is now. Mahalo.